Hi, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. It was like really weird. Like I wasn't expecting it to be so sinky. It was really sinky and squishy and weird. <laughs> Afterwards, I really stank. We're going to Launceston in Tasmania, where the build-up of mud in the Tamar River is prompting calls for council to do something about it. But first, in February, Petroleum Exploration Permit 11, known as PEP 11, expired. It covered a big stretch of open water between Newcastle and Sydney and allowed its holder to search and, pending approval, potentially drill for gas. Advent Energy, which owns most of the permit, has applied for an extension, citing the federal government's ambitions for a gas-led recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. But critics are fearful that the environment and lifestyle off Australia's most densely populated stretch of coastline could be in danger. The anxiety has spurred a movement, determined to prevent Pepper Leveron from moving forward. The final decision rests with Federal Resources Minister Keith Pitt, and a public announcement is imminent. Fleur Connick has been following the story for the Newcastle Herald. I think anyone who hears of fossil fuel development in their neighbourhood, that they have a connection, immediately goes, no, no, not in my backyard, please. And I think I was frustrated because coal mining and fossil fuel development has literally been on my doorstep since forever because of the port and all of the coal ships on the horizon. Rachel Scott is an environmental scientist and Meriwether local. She's been living in the beachside Newcastle suburb all her life, swimming in the ocean, riding its waves. Pep 11 is personal for her. She feels that it could impact her home. You finally get to a point where you think maybe we're starting to move away from that. But then this proposal of a gas rig and all of the rhetoric that's around it, that it's better for the climate and it's going to be part of the solution. Yeah, it's really frustrating and disappointing. Offshore development is, feels scary. It feels really risky. And particularly knowing the marine life that we have around here. Yeah, you, you never want that to be anywhere near where you live. Rachel tells me what the ocean means to her. Surfing is an excuse to sit out behind the waves and just stare out at the horizon. Even if you don't catch any waves, no matter what, you always come out feeling rejuvenated and refreshed, especially now that I work looking at computers a lot, that being able to refocus your eyes and look at something so expansive and get the smells and the breeze and the sun. I always love when I'm sitting out the back to jump off my board and dive under the water as deep as I can and open my eyes. And just all you can see is just blue. It's so nice to be able to see that space. Rachel is one of the roughly 6 million Australians who live along the Pepper Levin coastline, with parts of the permit zone only five and a half kilometres from the shore. The permit covers an area of 4,500 square kilometres of ocean from Newcastle to Manly in Sydney. Campaigners are concerned about the potential methane leaks and oil spills, which would cause irreversible damage to the environment and marine life. They also fear the drilling activity could impact the annual whale migration up Australia's east coast. Advent Energy says it plans to drill only a single well out at sea and that the environmental risk is limited. 
But Rachel says there hasn't been enough research into the environmental impacts. The main concern is that the long-term effects on the marine system are not known. And because no one has funded the studies to look into them, because that is the company who wants to develop the project's role, I just think in terms of chemical issues, sound issues, the marine environment is incredibly sensitive. And just because we don't know what the impacts are doesn't mean that they are invisible. Yama, Marba, Flora, how are you? That's been hello, how are you? It's good to meet you and talk to you. My name's William Smith, they all call me Uncle Bill. Uh, I'm going on 83 years of age. And I'm one Arua and I'm one Kamilaroi man, right? Three bloodlines. Uncle Bill is an Indigenous elder local to the Lake Macquarie area. At 82, he's seen a lot of change to the region he calls home. Well, I think it stinks, to be quite honest. Mm. They've done enough desecration to the land, the earth, our mother, Mimagawaja. They've shut waterways off and fish can't get back in, right, and back out. The kangaroo's tracks and places have been, roads been put there and everything's been done there. Even little porcupine, we smell his way across and all that for maple trees and different things, and the fish mm. can't get back to breed and spawn, right, because the waterway's been cut off and all that. So there's been enough damage there, and when I heard, because the ocean is very much a part of our life. Rachel says she's frustrated with the government's ongoing support for the fossil fuel industry and its lack of action on climate change. Replacing coal with gas in her backyard is just swapping one harmful pollutant for the other. The alternatives are there, and other countries overseas are pursuing greener, more renewable energy and green recovery policies. And here we have Australia, one of the big economies and one of the largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world, who is sticking to their guns for economic reasons when this country has so much to lose under a changing climate. And it's terrifying because I will be of the generation that will inherit that future. The 2020 budget revealed over $50 million will be spent on investments and developments for the gas industry. This followed Prime Minister Scott Morrison's announcement in September last year that gas will help establish a strong economy as part of Australia's recovery from the recession. Rachel Scott isn't the only local worried about PEP 11. Tens of thousands of community members have raised their concerns about the project. A petition to stop PEP 11, organised by Save Our Coast, was submitted to the government with 77,000 signatures. Dr Natasha Dean is the director and founder of Save Our Coast. She says people are horrified by the thought of gas rigs on the horizon. People are appalled, they're anxious, they're afraid. You know, they don't understand how this could possibly have been approved. And also, how lucky are we to see this incredible whale migration? And all this is that threat. We don't understand how two-thirds of our gas is exported and the risk of leaks and gas flares or explosions that impact on air quality, impacting on health. Drilling in the ocean risks pollution. It risks encountering oil because oil is often present where there's gas. And an oil spill could destroy the coast of New South Wales and beyond, you know, harming millions of marine creatures and the economy and all of us. Dr Dean believes the public has been clear in its opposition to any fossil fuel development in the PEP11 zone. We've conducted 13 
thousand conversations in the community and we've heard how deeply the community feels about this issue. You know, we love our beaches and our whales and dolphins, our way of life, and we've succeeded in mobilising the community with tens of thousands attending our Save Our Coast events and we've collected 77,000 signatures on petitions which were presented to Parliament, to Council PEP11. We've succeeded in having seismic testing cancelled in a huge testament to community spirit and in a win for marine life and our oceans. And we've also had now incredible bipartisan political support. We've succeeded in getting federal labour to support our campaign to oppose PEP11. We've always had the green support. We've got independence. And now we've even got Liberal MPs stepping up in Parliament to raise motions to end PEP11. So it's just testament to the community spirit that we have launched this campaign and we've received so much support. It's really humbling and heartwarming. Uncle Bill shakes his head at what he sees as nothing more than greed destroying his beloved country. He says the First Nations people haven't been consulted, something Dr Natasha Dean confirms, although Advent Energy says otherwise. So what's next apart from killing all marine life? Is this why they want to go to Mars? Because they're destroying this planet and they're going to go and destroy another planet? They've got to stop, sit, be still and listen to the indigenous people and first people and marry the old ways and new ways together. So we walk into the future, hand in hand. So our children are still going to walk hand in hand without losing the place of longings for our country, place of origin. And that's it. And that's our responsibility as adults and all our grandmothers, grandfathers, elders, to put that pathway in place and a foundation for them. Otherwise, I know nowhere to fish, nowhere to swim, nowhere to surf, no nothing, right? Because the hunger and the power for money, that's what it's all about. They're ripping the guts out of our country, taking all the minerals and everything out and selling overseas. What's coming back? David Breeze is the managing director of Advent Energy, the company which owns 85% of PEP11. He says drilling for gas in the permit zone is crucial to overcoming a gas shortage on the East Coast. There has been a shortage. It's forced gas prices higher and there's about 50,000 jobs that rely on gas as a primary input into that process. And of course, gas is widely used for cooking and heating. So it's very important that there are further alternative gas sources come to the marketplace to be able to meet that demand both now and into the future. He also argues that Advent Energy has drilled in the area safely in the past with no problems. If you look at the experience both from our previous well in 2010, which was safely drilled with hardly any commentary from the community at all, but most importantly, if you look at the experience offshore Victoria over the last 50 to 60 years and the multitude of gas wells that have been successfully run and operated over that entire time frame, and you look at the very tight regulatory framework in Australia, we're extremely confident that this is a, a low-risk environment. A decade ago, Ivan had drilled a single well in the PEP11 zone, but they didn't find any gas. There was a lull in activity, then, in 2018... Advent Energy began seismic testing within PEP11. This involves loud and explosive underwater air gun blasts, non-stop for weeks or months, to reveal potential gas and oil reserves. These blasts have been found to have a devastating effect on marine life. Save Our Coast campaigned strongly for two years against the seismic testing, 
and in early 2020, the campaign was successful. The testing stopped. Despite this, Advent Energy is confident that there's gas down there, so they want to start drilling again. That's why they need a new permit. Advent Energy's permit expired last month, and the decision for an extension of the permit and approval to begin drilling for gas is imminent. Bruce Robertson, I'm from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and I'm a gas and LNG analyst. Bruce Robertson has written extensively on the gas industry in Australia and disputes the notion that there has ever been an East Coast gas shortage. There's never been a shortage of gas on the East Coast. Australia is largest exporter of LNG on the globe. On the East Coast specifically, over 70% of the gas that's produced is exported. This idea of a shortage of gas is entirely concocted by the gas industry to promote the opening up of new projects in sensitive areas, such as PEP11. Another public concern is that once you start drilling, you might find more than just gas, risking an oil spill. We have to be very cautious with calling it just a gas province. Quite often these reserves have oil in them as well, and it's quite likely that they may well have significant liquids, which obviously ups the environmental risks of the project. I think that the project's environmental risks are being downplayed by the proponent. David Breeze and Advent Energy argue that Central Coast, Hunter and Sydney regions are major contributors to Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. David says drilling for gas provides an opportunity for capturing carbon dioxide and storing it under the seabed. It's very important that there are solutions found for carbon storage and the New South Wales offshore area offers a potential significant solution to carbon capture and storage and to the CO2 emission reduction and to net zero 2050. The decision on PEP 11's future ultimately rests with Federal Resources Minister Keith Pitt. There is bipartisan opposition against it, which was proven in the House of Representatives last year when a non-binding motion to stop PEP 11 was passed. New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro has come out against PEP11, urging Minister Pitt to reject it. Minister Pitt told Voice of Real Australia that he would make a decision in line with the national interest, but has recently asked the public to keep the proposal in perspective, saying that the gas well will be about the size of a dinner table. He also pointed out that Australia's gas industry was one of the most tightly regulated in the world, with a successful track record over decades. But Dr Natasha Dean from Save Our Coast doesn't believe it will end up being just one gas well. They're saying they're only exploring or drilling for one well. But if we think about other areas where they've explored in Australia, for example in Bass Strait, they initially said they were drilling for one well and then it ended up being 23 offshore platforms and the discovery of a huge oil reserve and eventually an oil field owned by huge overseas oil and gas companies with 600 kilometres of undersea pipelines. So when they're exploring, it means the future is unknown and what we it could be a dangerous precedent opening up the entire east coast of Australia with oil and gas companies predicting which reserves. So one exploration could open all this up and it's a very dangerous precedent. So naturally, we are protective of our home environment because we love it. People love whales and dolphins in our coast. And that is why we've had so much response to our campaign because everybody is horrified. Rachel Scott wants these questions answered. 
But despite her advocacy and the huge community movement aimed at preventing drilling in the PEP11 zone, Rachel is more and more convinced it will go ahead. It's the government's COVID recovery policy, the gas-fired recovery, and if they, you know, approve it in the national interest in energy security, it doesn't matter how many people fight against it, they will somehow be able to make a case for it anyway. I think the thing that's really scary about it is, like, what happened with the Narrabri gas project, no matter what the public opposition is, and even opposition across this political spectrum, that these things can be approved anyway. And so that leaves you feeling really powerless because if all of the normal pathways that we use to oppose something are exhausted, then what possibly can we do next? Uncle Bill dreams of a future where all Australians live in closer harmony with the environment and where we all listen to and learn from First Nations knowledge. Come on, stop, sit, be still and listen to the voices you can't hear and see what you can't see, but you'll see it. Feel what you can't feel, but you'll feel it. Because you're killing yourself and your own people, your own parents, your own kids, killing their lifestyle. Yet you want to give them a good lifestyle? Well, stop this blasting, stop this drilling. There's enough minerals around, enough taken out of the earth, and enough going overseas. So we just got to marry them and come together and sit, be still and listen and work our way out so we can go into the future without damaging the land, the earth, or the rivers, the waterways, but especially the ocean. That's Hunter Elder Uncle Bill there, and we'll know soon enough whether the gas licence will be extended or not. That story was from the Newcastle Herald's intern, Fleur Connick. She's been following PEP11 for some time. Special thanks to Central News and the UTS Journalism Lab. Now... Launceston is one of Australia's oldest and most picturesque regional cities, set in a compact valley with steep hills looking down on the Tamar River, Tanamaluka in the local Aboriginal language. It's not technically a river, though. It's a tidal estuary, and tributaries from 15% of Tasmania's landmass flow into it. Before colonisation, the upper Tamar, where Launceston now sits, was a shimmering patchwork of mangroves and mudflats. But for decades since, the mud was dredged and raked, clearing the way for the people of Launceston to enjoy the waters. Now, that was stopped in 2019 due to environmental concerns, and the mudflats are building up again, infuriating some of the locals. A public campaign is demanding authorities fix the mud, but is it that simple? Adam Holmes writes for The Examiner. He sends this postcard from a city stuck in the mud. So I was being told to move further across because I kept always crashing into another crew and then I moved a bit too far across and next thing I know I wasn't moving anymore and ended up being stuck in the mud. Ashley Detmer is 15 years old and grew up in Launceston. She spends a lot of time on the Kanamaluka Tama River in a single skull rowboat. On February 7, she took part in an annual regatta racing against other high school students. That day, Ashley launched onto the river as she'd done countless times before but the tide had already started to recede. Did you see the mud coming up or did you just sort of suddenly stop? The water goes out quite quickly, so when I ended up being stuck in it, like I was still moving a little bit, like there were still bits of water there, and then around like two minutes later or something, all the water was just completely gone, so I didn't see the mud at all. Ashley laughs about it now, but it was a complex rescue. Three boats were involved, and despite her good sense of humour, it could very easily have been a different story. Luckily I didn't sink under the mud, but it went up to like about my chest, 
It was like really weird. Like I wasn't expecting it to be so sinky. It was really sinky and squishy and weird. <laughs> Afterwards, I really stank. Ashley's story shone a light on what some people have been arguing for a while, that the mudflats building up in the Upper Tamar near Launceston are unsightly, and they make water sports and boating along the river difficult or even impossible. Yeah, you weren't worried about, afraid of what might have happened? No, I don't know why. I know, I just found it like a half fun experience. I think I was more just laughing at the fact of my stupidity for getting stuck in the mud. Before colonisation, the Upper Tamar had expansive mudflats to compact the sediment, wetlands to filter them, and channels for the water to flow in and out. But as the city developed, residents wanted a river, a port, a marina, yacht clubs, rowing clubs, restaurants and hotels. They wanted to use it like other cities use their waterfronts. Huge dredging ships dug deeper channels, and boats would scoop up the mud to add more depth. A dam was built nearby, a suburb was added on top of the mudflats, and the landscape changed. Dredging had proven costly and inefficient, so raking was employed. But two years ago, an environmental report found that raking was releasing dangerous toxins and heavy metals stored in the mud from the rivers that flow into the Tamar, from past industrial activities, even sewerage. It was harming unique ecosystems, so they've been banned, and the Tamar's mudflats are quickly making a comeback. It's a mixed system. You will always get salt water up one end and some fresh down the other, but it, it changes through the seasons. The um, first Tasmanians had two names. Kanamaluka was one half and Ponrabble was the other. And there was no definite line between the two. It was like a seasonal thing. David Maynard is a natural sciences curator. I meet him at the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery in Launceston. He's been studying the river for years and is an expert on its ecology. I asked him to explain the impact of dredging and raking further. The rules have changed. You can't just do sort of cowboy activities where it's just get, get the sediments out and we'll put it on paddocks or we'll make sports fields out. You can't do that anymore. The dredge spoils would have to be put into landfill and the maths has been done. If Launceston was to try and manage the amount of dredge spoil that came out, they would have to greatly increase the size of our land fill areas and it's just not economically viable. It would cost us something like, from memory, it was around $10 million a year. David shows me a map of the Upper Tamar in 1833, in its pre-colonial state. Mudflats were a natural part of this system, but there were also clear channels going through the mud. What we're looking at is a perfect example of what nature would do if we didn't intervene. You would have freshwater inputs from the North and South Esk rivers and they deliver some of the sediments down uh, into Launceston, those sediments drop out and form extensive mud banks. And this map in 1833 shows those very mud banks. Whenever we do some management activity, whether it be dredging or raking, that removes those mud banks, but they return. As soon as you stop that activity, within 12 or 18 months, nature starts to put those features back again. So if you left it alone, you would end up with exactly zero gain for whatever money you just spent. But times have changed a bit since 1833. There's a major Tasmanian city next door for a start, and its population has made the river and water sports a part of their life. The Tamar Rowing Club is one of the oldest rowing clubs in Australia. It's probably the oldest continuous rowing club, and it was set up in 1876. The original site was over there where the New King's Bridge is, and it was put there because it faced onto the South Esk, and there was water access at all tides. 
Jim Guy has been involved with the Tamer Rowing Club for over 50 years. A past president, rower, coach and life member, rowing is his passion. We meet on the rowing club's pontoon as the tide starts to recede in the early afternoon. To the south is the entrance to the South Esk River and Launceston's Cataract Gorge, a beloved tourist attraction downstream from a hydro-powered dam. And to the north is the Tamar. The rowing club is wedged in between in a spot facing the fastest build-up of mud. Just a few years ago, their clubhouse was renovated after being damaged by flood. Jim tells me why the river is important to the community. Tame Rowing Club has uh, over 100 members. It plays a, a huge role in the Launceston community. Uh, it was set up by the original forefathers of the city. It was this, one of the social hubs. It plays a big part in the schools. It also has a very good master's rowing program where you're talking about more mature athletes, people that may have rowed before or not rowed, come back. So there is a health aspect to that. And, of course, it is a social connection area. So it is a very important part of this town. Jim says river users hadn't been consulted before the move to stop raking. It's why he's involved in the Tamar Action Group, which is trying to free the river from the mud. One of the problems that has occurred is that there have been a number of inquiries that have been done over the period. Uh, Professor Ingalls, who did one of the original ones, pointed out that no raking or dredging operation is is a a non-option. You have to do it, otherwise the area is going to be rendered unusable. Now, certainly there are the environmental aspects that have been mentioned, but I think that there needs to be an evaluation of what is reasonable with that. And that's why I say I think if there was a regular maintenance program, that may help in the volume of mud that had to be removed at any one time. And the Flood Authority have graphs of the mud levels, so they quite clearly can see what those levels were and how much silt has been returned. But the City of Launceston's environmental report was clear. No dredging no raking. Jim and other Launceston residents might have to learn to love the mud. That slogan was coined by a council officer, then repeated by local politicians. And when people say you have to learn to love the mud or love the mud flats... We uh, do not agree with that. That, that I I think, was an unfortunate comment that was made. Um, I think we need to be a little smarter than that and learn to work together in relation to make a worthwhile situation for the city. About 20 years ago, property developers and the council decided to transform the Tamar foreshore. Restaurants, bars, cafes, hotels and a boardwalk sprang up in response, with a marina right in the middle. That was before the dredging and raking ban, so that lovely foreshore now sits on the edge of a swelling mud flap. And as the tide goes out, the mud is revealed. Boats in the marina descend and sit on top of it, unable to use the river. The setting sun to the west sometimes glistens off the top of the brown expanse. Errol Stewart is a property developer, car yard baron and Launceston local who was instrumental in that foreshore development, known as the Seaport. Before his intervention, the area was disused ports and silos. Now it's a tourism drawcard. He's beloved as a local icon. Errol says the current management of the river is not good enough. I think everybody in the city has got a reasonable expectation that the river should be in better condition. It should be more usable for rowers, more usable for boat owners, and it should look aesthetically more pleasing than it does at the moment. So some would say you've got to learn to love the mudflats, and I think that that's a reasonable statement, except the mudflats is fine, but now what we're getting is banks of mud 
So the mud starts to build up and up and up um, because we're restricting the flow via the implementation of the agricultural dams and because we've reduced the tidal prism over the last 100 years. And while we sit and chat, we're surrounded by businesses and boats adorned with placards reading, Fix the Mud. I can see dozens of them. Even cars in the car parks bought bumper stickers with the slogan. Errol has an obvious interest in a waterfront development. He wants it to be attractive. He doesn't want boat owners to be stuck in the mud in the marina. His solution to that problem is simple. Build a boardwalk over the top of the marina and relocate the boat somewhere nearby. Yeah, well, our plan really is to take the inside berths which sit on the mud away and essentially uh, discard them and only leave the marina that sits closer to the edge of the channel, which is only about a third of the marina. So we take two thirds out and then we continue the marina along the river edge. So we widen the marina essentially, but we lose the depth of the marina in terms of its depth towards the land. So that would leave a very big hole of mud at low tide between where we're sitting and the house is 150 metres away and our proposal is to infill that with a new promenade exactly the same as we've got here now and we think that's a really good compromise. But maybe the mud itself could become a tourist attraction. That's what David suggests. He says there's plenty of examples of wetlands as a popular waterside feature. See the mud's not broken. The mud doesn't need fixing. It's natural. What we need to do is look at how we live with that, how we value it. If we were to let it re-establish, if we were to have improved wetlands, emergent forests of tea trees and such around, maybe we could encourage more recreational activities around those wetlands and even use them to generate tourism income. And while many believe the mudflats make the city's risk of flood worse, and Launceston is a very flood-prone city, David says the mud could actually reduce the risk. The wetlands around the estuary, they are the filter. In fact, one of the current solutions on the table are engineered wetlands. It's a great way to filter water, mitigate flood, and also create habitat for wildlife. And there is also social and economic outcomes. You can have boardwalks, you can have recreational activities, bike rides and such, and it's also a way of attracting tourists. Meanwhile, Jim and other water users still want to return to the days of raking. You can't row a boat in mud. For the users to be involved and for us to come up with a a resolution, whether it be raking or dredging, and I think it comes down to those two issues, to ensure that the river can be utilised. Otherwise, it will not only be a loss to the clubs and that that are here, but in fact the tourists and so forth that come, because you talk to these, like this cruise boat going past now, people love to be on the river when there's a regatta on or when there's cruise training. It all adds to the sort of tourist aspect. And of course the other thing is Launceston identifies with the gorge. And so this is a prime tourist focus area. But as David explains, the mud and its contents are an important part of the environment. And dislodging that habitat for so many years has impacted the wider ecosystem. And these are really important because things live in the sand and so other things come over and feed off that sand. So even though it might look like a boring old piece of sand, it's an important habitat type. And one of the most critical ones we have is our seagrass beds. It's known worldwide that these are important as nursery areas and they can support commercial fisheries and such. So having these, protecting them here in the estuary can have benefits to other parts of the community and the uh, economy. Another habitat type is the emergent 
grasses, like the wetlands, and the salt marsh communities. Again, they're important as biodiversity hotspots, but they're also quite threatened by the way we manage our environment. That brings us to today. A task force of council, state government, estuary management and other stakeholders plan to present a report with a number of options. They aim to put science at the heart of decision-making, but the community needs to play its part too. What's realistic? What's environmentally safe? Can the mud coexist with rowers and a waterfront? In the end, it could come down to what the Launceston community values the most. And Errol says waterways have become a huge part of a lot of communities. They all turn their back initially, but they come back and say, hey, this river's really good. If you look at Melbourne, uh, you know, 50 years ago, the Yarra was nothing like it is now, and it just changed. They got rid of industry and they built casinos and everything around it. So people like to be on the waterfront. Now, whether it's an estuary or a river, same with Adelaide, same with every major city around the world. And it isn't just the mud that has Launceston residents calling for better management of the river. The city has an outdated combined sewerage and stormwater system that means raw sewerage ends up in the river during heavy rain. But millions of dollars are being pumped into it to stop that source of contamination. David Maynard again. There are other issues that we still suffer from, like Launceston has a mixed stormwater and sewage system, which when it was put in in 1860, I think it was, was like state of the art. But now it's no good. It allows for some sewage contamination into the upper estuary. I do know people personally that have had an injury and got some of the sediments in it and ended up in hospital with infections and it's likely that those were related to the poor water quality and uh, possibly which is linked to the sewage. Ashley certainly isn't about to jump back into the mud. Yeah I ended up having a shower then I got home had a bath and then had another shower. The day afterwards in the morning I felt a bit upset in my stomach And so I stayed home from school that day. But throughout the day, it got better. And then I was at the school the next day. For now, Launceston is treading water. Finding a delicate balance between aesthetics, utility, safety, flood mitigation, toxicity and ecological impact seems an impossible task. What's clear is that Launceston residents and visitors love the Tamar River and want it to continue as the centre of the city without endangering the environment or themselves. Looking over the estuary, I can see that it's already changed quite a bit in the past 18 months. But there's still birds landing gracefully on the surface, rowers parting the waves occasionally, joggers and walkers on the foreshore. It's almost like nature is healing itself. But are residents learning to love the mud? Adam Holmes is one of our reporters in Launceston. And that's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Voice of Real Australia. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced and mixed by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. You can follow me on Twitter at TomMelville124. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. 
Special thanks this week go to Jim Keller and Heath Harrison. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>